morning. Um, my name is Jacob Reed, and I'll be reading Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaging in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, as we come to your word now, I pray that each and every one of us would feel the strong hand of the Savior upon us, holding us fast. Justice has been satisfied by this one who holds us in his hand. Lord, may our hearts embrace such a Savior this morning like never before. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What is the worst legal trouble you've ever been in? Have you ever had to appear in court? Do you know all too well that scene, what that scene would look like and how it all works? If you do, then you know what I'm about to describe better than I do. (laughs) My main experience with the courtroom is growing up watching Andy Griffith play Matlock. That's, That's about it. And in my imagination, every courtroom has a lawyer there in a light gray suit with a southern drawl. That's just the way it should be. That's the courtroom I picture. But in reality, there isn't a Matlock. There isn't a Perry Mason in a real courtroom, but there is always a seat that is high up, a desk that is elevated, usually in the center of the room, where sits the judge. It's called the bench. May I approach the bench, Your Honor, Matlock would say. As far as I can tell, the bench, that elevated seat of the judge, is a courtroom feature that cuts across most every culture, and most all of time. In nearly every culture's courtroom setting, the judge is is somewhere central and elevated. It's actually kind of amazing that most people in most places intuit that this is the way it's supposed to be. Where do we get that from, I wonder? In our American justice system, the courtroom also has two tables, Below the watchful gaze of the judge, there's a table for the prosecution, and there's a table for the defense. The defendant, the person on trial, sits at their table uh, with the legal help that's there to defend them, while the prosecutor, along with all the help given to, to that person, sits at the other table trying to prove the guilt of the defendant. Usually in our system, there's also a jury who's off to the side somewhere to whom the case is being made. Now, I've never been on a jury. Touch wood, as the English would say. Knock on wood, as we would say. I've never been on a jury, but I don't think I would mind serving on one. Uh, But I've been told not to get up my hopes too high as a pastor. There's always some lawyer somewhere who usually objects to a pastor serving on a jury for some unknown reason. It's as though they're afraid of locking us in a room with 11 other people 
what's the worst that could happen? I don't know. But for, for our purposes this morning, let's forget about the jury. Let's also forget about the two tables for the prosecution defense. Picture instead a courtroom scene that's a little bit more Victorian with a judge that is seated up even higher than normal. And instead of a table for the defense, there is a dock, a little railed off platform where the defendant stands all by himself before the judge. Even though he's standing on this little platform, the accused person is still head and shoulders below the judge seated up on the bench. You've seen a courtroom setting like that before, haven't you? Perhaps in a movie or in a TV series based off some Charles Dickens novel. Uh, Often there is some helpless looking little orphan standing in the dock with some old snooty judge up on the bench in in a white barrister's wig looking down over his glasses disapprovingly at the person in the dock before he pronounces some outrageously harsh sentence. It's off to debtor's prison with you, boy, until you've paid back every last farthing. Oh, you don't like it? Well, you should have thought of that before being poor, right? Next case. Next case. Move along. You've seen a scene like that before, I bet. And that scene in Dickens is meant to outrage us, isn't it? When there is injustice in the courtroom against the one in the dock with a malicious judge on the bench, we are meant to feel outraged. When the one upon the bench is unjust and openly hostile and obviously evil, we are meant to feel anger toward that one high up on the bench, and we are meant to feel pity toward the one in the dock, down low, all by himself, We are meant to feel that, and we should. But what if the alienated, hostile, and evil one up on the bench is us? What if we are the unjust judge, and the one in the dock is not only completely innocent, but he is our holy creator and rightful king. C.S. Lewis observed that this reversal of roles is happening everywhere in modern society. He said, the ancient man approached God or even the gods as an accused person approached his judge. But for the modern man, the roles are quite reversed. He is the judge and God is in the dock. Modern man sits up high on his bench, passing judgment on God, on whether the defendant even exists. We sit judging God, and if we grant that he is a person that exists, we then sit in judgment over how he is running things in this universe he's made. Lewis says, if God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, we are ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is on the dock. We're looking at three verses in Colossians this morning. 
And we've got three big truths to see. The first used to be an obvious truth to everyone, but it's a truth that modern people today have largely forgotten. When it comes to the courtroom, you're in the dock. That's point number one. You're in the dock. God is not in the dock. You are. Let's see that in verse 21. Verse 21 says, Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. It's not God who's in the dock. You're in the dock, and here are the charges being brought against you. Verse 21, you were alienated. You were hostile in mind. You were engaged in evil deeds. All these charges fall under, can fall under a single banner. Sin, right? It's sin. We could file all these charges under the banner of cosmic treason against creation's king. But let's take these three separately, one at a time, considering them. You're standing there in the dock, and charge number one is leveled at you. You are alienated. Alienated from what, you ask? Isn't it obvious? Don't you feel it? You're alienated from God. You're divorced from the connection you were designed to have with your creator. You've severed ties that you were meant to have with him. You've cut off the natural fellowship you were meant to have with your maker. And in this divorce, you were the offending party. You were the party at fault. And the lawyers will tell you, this wasn't a case where both parties share fault. This wasn't an a conscious uncoupling. The offense didn't run both ways. With your life, you said, shove off, God. I'm in charge. I'll do it my own way. We've alienated ourselves from God. And as a result, we've alienated ourselves from most everything else. This isn't lost on the world. People feel this reality deep down. A sense of alienation was the basis for some of Karl Marx's social theories. Marx talked about how the worker feels alienated from his job, from his work. The factory worker feels alienated from the final product he is producing, the expensive car he could never afford, that new piece of technology that she can never, she produces but can never have. We feel alienated from our work and we feel alienated from one another. Ultimately, Marx says, we feel alienated from ourselves. Marx, however, didn't recognize that this was the result of sin, that our relationship with God has been broken. Therefore, our relationship with other things, with our work, has been broken very often as well. Marx didn't properly diagnose the cause. Therefore, he didn't properly prescribe the cure either. But he did recognize that humanity had an alienation problem. We feel this sense of divorce and separation from things we shouldn't. By the way, most people know about Karl Marx, but few people know about his sister, Anya, who was an Olympic runner. 
even though her name is still mentioned at the beginning of every race, on your marks. Oh, oh okay. I'm, I'm turning into my father. I'm turning into my father. That's okay. Alienation. Alienation. It's a problem. It's a problem. It's a problem for philosophers. It's a problem for Olympic runners as well. Ultimately, all alienation springs from the original cause. We said this with our lives. We said, shove off God. Shove off God. We'll figure out how to live in this world on our own. Charge number one has been brought. And guess what? We stand convicted. We stand guilty as charged. We were alienated. And charge number two, we were hostile in mind. Do you see that? You were formerly alienated and hostile in mind. Here's a second charge laid against us as we're in the dock. Your mind is naturally hostile, hostile toward God. Again, philosophers have for a long time recognized this. French philosopher Blaise Pascal once said something in French, but translated into English, he said this, men despise religion, they hate it, and are afraid it might be true. Pascal put his finger on something that we should recognize. We should all recognize. It is impossible for us to approach God neutrally. Again, we think God is in the dock, we are on the bench, and we are sitting in judgment of him, and our judgment is completely neutral. We think we're being completely fair and impartial as we weigh the evidence and judge God. I sit upon the judgment seat as unbiased and just a judge as God could ever wish to find. That's what we think. We think that, but it is simply not true. It's not true of me. It's not true of you. It's not true of anyone. We are far more like the snooty Dickensian judge looking down our nose at God than we like to think that we are. We cannot judge impartially because we all approach the bench already wanting something to be true. You're coming to judge already pre-committed in your heart to an outcome. You come to the bench already knowing that to judge God real would be very inconvenient for your chosen lifestyle for your illicit desires, for your worldly ambitions. It would be very inconvenient. There is a lot there that you would rather not deal with, a lot of implications that you'd rather not sort through. You come to the bench, therefore, as a hostile judge, prejudiced toward a certain outcome. You already want something to be true. And it's nigh impossible to convince someone of something they really don't want to be true. It was the late Tim Keller who once said this in an interview. He said, there's really no reason for me to pull out my guns on the evidence for the resurrection, which is trying to show that Christianity is true, if they don't want it to be true. But if I get them to want it, if they get to the place of saying, gee, Wouldn't it be great 
if that was true, but is it? Then I can do my apologetics. You can't convince a judge who is hostile until you can change what they want to be true. Humanity has a natural hostility toward God. We are hostile in mind, Paul says. We love the darkness and hate the light, Jesus says. John Owen said that every drop of sin is enmity toward God. It is hostility toward God. Our being is soaked with hostile rebellion against our creator. But the heart can change. Our deepest allegiance can shift. Our soul can be converted. We can be born again, as Jesus said. We can be formally alienated and hostile in mind, Paul says. These were the the first two charges laid against us as we stand there in the dock. Here's the third, verse 21. We were alienated, we were hostile in mind, and we were engaged in evil deeds. We stand accused of not just a heart-level contempt for our judge, not just a natural hostility toward our creator. We stand accused of actual acts of evil. Jesus taught that the heart level alone is enough. It's enough to condemn us. The hate and lust you harbor inside, even if you never act on it, will still condemn us in the eyes of God who sees the heart and the corruptions that fill it. But our guilt goes farther than our thoughts and desires. We've all engaged in actual evil deeds. We've all done wrong. And then we've lied to cover it up. We've all spoken words of slander against others. We've intentionally deceived in order to put ourselves in a better light. We've manipulated our spouse. We've dishonored our parents. We've actively done things and made choices that have broken relationships and hurt people. We've actively and selfishly made self-destructive choices. All of us. We've all actively engaged in evil deeds. And we stand there in the dock guilty. Guilty and condemned. We can only put our hand over our mouth and weep as one charge after another is read against us to our shame. But then, unexpectedly and unlooked for, there is a tap on our shoulder. And someone else steps into the dock. Like help beyond hope, we come to verse 22 and our second point. You were all formerly alienated, engaged in evil deeds, hostile in mind, verse 22. Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Here's what happens. Jesus, we were in the dock, but Jesus goes into the dock. Point number two, Jesus goes into the dock with us. As we stood there in the dock all alone, guilty as sin, preparing ourselves for the verdict, we're certain is coming, a hand falls on our shoulder. 
not to drag us away, but to take our place. Jesus steps into the dock and has us sit and watch as he stands in our place and satisfies justice for us. You can imagine the scene a bit like something out of Dickens with a Sidney Carlton and Charles Darnay-like exchange of places that happens. You could say this moment is Dickensian, but it would be fairer to say that Dickens patterned the twist in his stories off the gospel. It's, this is our story. The gospel is the great story of how the Son of God takes on flesh so that he might take on our punishment. God takes on our flesh and blood so that he might bleed for us. Jesus walks upon our roads with us so that he might stand in our dock for us. That's the great story. So that, verse 22, he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. The ultimate goal of the incarnation was this, reconciliation. There is no other way to reconcile the guilty back to God. Justice had to be satisfied. The judge on the bench couldn't just wink at the traitor and say, cosmic treason really isn't that bad. I'm just going to let you go. We would impeach that judge who willfully let traitors against our nation go scot-free, wouldn't we? We would impeach that judge. God is the judge of all the universe. How much more must he do what is right? How much greater would justice be offended by letting traitors against heaven go free? You probably wouldn't want to live in a kingdom that you had once betrayed, even if you'd been let off the hook, unless your treason had been fully dealt with, your crimes had been fully paid for, and paid so fully that there is now no wrath left. Not one drop of animosity is left towards you. This is what Jesus did, according to verse 22. He stands for us in the dock. He hangs upon a cross in our place. The only truly obedient one becomes sin for us. The only truly innocent one becomes guilty in our place. In olden days... There might have been a whipping boy from some poor, lower-class family who would take the punishment when the prince was especially naughty. He would get beaten in the prince's place. But this is the exact opposite, isn't it? Jesus is the prince of heaven, and he willingly takes upon himself our whipping. The prince has taken the punishment for the paupers in his kingdom. A punishment that would have taken us forever to pay. God in flesh has paid our debt in blood upon the cross. He has paid our debt more fully than we ourselves could have ever paid it if we were left to eternity paying this debt. Why is that? It's because of this. It's because the blood of Jesus is 
the blood of God. You see that in verse 22? We've been reconciled through his death, through his shed blood. The Bible says this, Paul says this, that the church of God, which he purchased with what? With his own blood. The church of God was purchased with God's own blood. The blood of Jesus more fully satisfies divine justice than anything else ever could have, than an eternity in hell ever could have. God satisfies justice for us by Jesus going into the dock, taking upon himself our punishment. He makes, him, makes peace with God for us. He reconciles us back to God who we had wronged. He makes us right with the king that we had offended. He restores the relationship with the judge that we had alienated ourselves from. And wonder of wonders, we discover that this God, this judge, this king had this plan to save us all along, this whole time. This judge, in order to be both just and the justifier of those who had broken faith with him, sent his son into the world. It was his plan to send his son into the dock before a crime had ever been committed. The father sent the son as the sacrificial lamb offered for our peace. That had always been his plan. That's why Jesus is called the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. Before we ever alienated ourselves, God already had a rescue plan. The judge already had a way to declare the guilty not guilty and still be just. I've been told that Mark Twain, in response to the question, what are the two greatest words in the English language, responded without a second thought. Not guilty. Two greatest words. Not guilty. If you've ever been there, you know that's true. Not guilty. If you've ever had any legal trouble, you know what Mark Twain is talking about. Tears of joy fall from your eyes as the punishment threatened against you no longer hangs like a cloud over your future. Not guilty. You can imagine it, but you really don't have to. As a Christian, you've lived it. You've lived this already. You know that you were guilty, verse 21, guilty of alienation from your creator, of hostility in your mind toward your king, engaged in evil deeds against his will. You stand there in the dock, guilty. But as you own it, Jesus steps into the dock for you. As he takes your place and your punishment, he doesn't just wipe your slate clean. He says, here, take what is mine. Take my obedience. Take my perfect holiness. Take my blamelessness. Take the credits of my life beyond reproach. Take it all. I will take your guilt and punishment. You take my righteousness and my inheritance. Take it all. Whereas in verse 21, we were all formerly part of the great divorce 
alienated from God? In verse 22, we are part of the great exchange. Jesus taking our guilty verdict and giving us in exchange his righteousness, his holiness, his blamelessness. Maybe this morning in your heart, you're thinking, that's good. But that all really seems too good to be true. It is called the good news, right? It is called the good news after all. And if and you're understanding it rightly if you feel like this just seems too good. It's too good. It feels too good to be true. How then can we know that it is true? How do we know that Jesus really has gone into the dock for me? How can I know? How do I know that I've truly gone from the great divorce in verse 21 to the great exchange in verse 22? You know if you go through the great journey of verse 23. Look at verse 23. Again, verse 22, he's reconciled us to himself. He's made us holy, blameless in God's eyes. We know he's done this, verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard which was proclaimed in all of creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Here's our third and final heading. Faith's journey is proof of the dock. Faith's journey is proof of the dock. Faith's journey is proof of what has happened in the dock, that what has happened in the dock is real. Perseverance in faith and hope is the proof of our acquittal. Because without perseverance, you can simply be fooling yourself. You can fool yourself. Did you really believe in Jesus? Or was he just a passing fad in your life? Like your belief in the tooth fairy. Was Jesus simply a ticket that you wanted to hold on to until you got to heaven? You were happy with that ticket until you discarded it when earth became all the heaven you aspired to, all the heaven you wanted. Without persevering in faith and hope, we can simply be fooling ourselves that we've really received God's not guilty verdict. Because if we don't persevere in faith and trust, we once again reverse the roles. We climb back up on the bench and we put God back in the to the dock, passing judgment over him. That's what's happening in every deconversion story you will ever hear. Every falling away from faith you will ever hear, this is what's happened. At some point, I've stopped believing that I was in the dock, and instead, I put God there. I judged that he was lacking just cause for my misfortune. For, for my sickness, for my loss. I judged that he was withholding what I really wanted. He wasn't doing it for me. So I judged him and I found him wanting. It is tragic and it is sad, but you will meet people like that. That's their story. They left the dock 
and usurped the bench. You will meet people who have taken upon themselves the mantle of judge. That's their story. Maybe it's your story. Maybe you walked in here like that this morning, and you're just now seeing it in those terms, in this light. By abandoning the journey, you're abandoning the great exchange. Don't do it. This is the only place the great exchange happens when you recognize yourself to be in the dock. Not the judge, but in the dock. By taking the bench to be the judge, you're abandoning the only place where you can stand steadfast in the forgiveness purchased by the Son of God. It's only in faith's continued journey that we see the proof that what has happened to us in the dock is real. It's real. The proof is found along your journey, by continuing in the journey. But also, the proof is found in the journey of others. We see this in verse 23. Paul points to himself. Look at me. I am a minister of this gospel. We see proof in Paul's journey. Paul is a real-life person with a real-life ministry of the gospel that really has been changed by an encounter with this good news. Paul's journey is proof not easily pushed aside. Whenever I struggle with doubts, Paul's life is often a proof I go back to. It just keeps coming back to me. I have no explanation for how this man goes from persecutor of the gospel to preacher of the gospel, having everything to lose and ultimately losing everything including his freedom in life, I have no other explanation for Paul's journey except for the one he himself gives here in the New Testament, that he had an encounter with the risen Christ that changed everything. You can dismiss it as the hallucinations of a crazy person, but these aren't the words of a crazy person, are they? No. Paul's letters to the Romans is widely acknowledged as the greatest letter ever written. The books written about Paul's letters would overflow many a library. You know that. Lives changed by Paul's writings are too many to put on any monument to list out. There is proof in Paul's journey and perseverance. And he is not alone. This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, Paul says. There are millions upon millions whose faith journey and changed lives attest to this reality. They were in the dock, but Jesus took their place, and that changed everything. They remained steadfast in that belief, even when it meant torture, even when it meant death. They remained steadfast in that hope, and it changed their lives. It enabled them to take risk and leave family and cross oceans and care for the poor and nurse the sick during times of plague and free the bonds of slaves and work for justice. Having received God's not guilty verdict, there was nothing they could not do in an overflow of gratitude as their joyful response to this not guilty verdict in their life. Faith's journey, continued journey, is the proof. 
We see the proof in Paul's journey. We see it in Christians throughout history, all places and points in time. And I pray that you will see the proof in your life's journey as well. What's the worst legal trouble you've ever been in? I think you now know the answer. And I pray now that your heart embraces God's solution. A Savior who stands in the dock for you. Father, may our hearts embrace this advocate. May we love this Christ. When we were helpless, when we were hopeless, he stands for us, taking upon himself all of our punishment in our place so that we might be blameless, holy, righteous. Lord, may that great exchange fill our hearts with great gratitude this morning. May we really believe it. May we persevere in believing it. And may it change us, change our lives, change the way we live life. May we live out an overflow of gratitude as the person who should have been condemned, but we have been declared not guilty. May we go forth from here with that joy in our hearts of the, of the guilty set free and washed clean. And more than that, we made part of the family an inheritance and a kingdom is ours through Christ our Lord. May we believe all these things afresh this morning. And in believing, may we rejoice and live out of the abundant overflow of great gratitude in our not guilty verdict. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.